Hi, everyone. I know recently we announced we were going to two episodes a week and then three episodes a week. But you know what? There are just too many episodes. So we are going to back to five episodes a week. Still a reduction from seven, but there were just too many interviews scheduled, and I didn't want to make all the authors wait for too long. So I hope you can keep up with me. Listen to one a week as you're on your way to work or on your way home or putting your kids to bed or whatever it is you're doing. Moms don't have time to read books now five times a week. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hi, this is Ibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. I'm also the host of Moms Don't Have Time to Lose Weight, and I'm the editor of the anthology, which you should run out and buy, called Moms Don't Have Time to, a quarantine anthology. All proceeds of that book go to COVID-19 vaccine research. And I'm the editor-in-chief of Moms Don't Have Time to Write, a new publication on Medium, and we're accepting submissions, so please send your personal essays there. And if all that isn't enough, you can follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens, and my website is ZibbyOwens.com. Okay, now back to this amazing podcast. Listeners, if you enjoy this podcast, I promise you will love my new audiobook for Moms Don't Have Time to a Quarantine Anthology. It's not about the quarantine, but a lot of the essays were written during that time about other things that moms don't have time to do or other busy people, things like reading, eating, working out, breathing, having sex, and 60 best-selling and notable authors wrote essays. All those authors have been on this very podcast. So if you like to listen to my conversations, if you want to get to know these authors better, I read the audiobook myself. Check it out on Audible, Moms Don't Have Time To, a quarantine anthology. Again, Audible, audiobook. Go listen to it. It's like 60 mini podcasts. I hope you enjoy. Sanjeev Sahoda is the author of China Room, a novel. He is also the author of Hours Are the Streets and The Year of the Runaways, which was shortlisted for the Man Booker Prize and the Dylan Thomas Prize and was awarded a European Union Prize for Literature. In 2013, he was named one of Granta's 20 Best of Young British Novelists of the Decade. He lives in Sheffield, England with his family. Welcome. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to discuss China Room. I'm so excited that you're here. Well, thanks, Cindy. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for asking me. 
So would you mind telling listeners what your book is about? And also, I would love to hear more of the backstory of your family and how this is sort of loosely based on folklore in your own family and all that good stuff. Yeah, sure. So the book's about a place, a room in a farm in rural India, in a state in the northwest of India called Punjab, and the two lives that kind of are that inhabit that room and also in turn inhabited by it. So in 1929, um, we have Meher, who's a, a young girl, she's 15 years old, and she's one of three women that's been, that have been married to three brothers. And because of the customs of the time and the fact that they were married in one ceremony and, that, and they're kept sequestered from the men, she doesn't know which of the brothers her husband. So as a novel, in a way, charts her her desire to not only just find out you know, who it is that she's married to, but also her development to an increased knowledge of her own personhood, of her own right to feel desire and to have needs and wants of her own and for freedom and self-expression. So that's 1929. Then there's another strand set in 1999, which is when her a young man, her great-grandson, we come to learn, comes to stay on the farm in that same room to kind of come to terms with his own travails and his difficulties of being of growing up in kind of the deindustrialized north of England. So it's a story set across once more three summers actually, where both these characters are trying to well it's a summer of reckoning, they're trying to come to terms with with ideas of self-worth and freedom and both kind of like to try to make themselves kind of liberated. Um, I think, yes, yeah, a story of liberation. I see it. And yeah, it's the seed of the story was this kind of this legend or this family lore about my great grandmother, who was apparently one of four women, actually not three, one of four women who was married to four brothers. And so the story goes, how this story has been embellished over the decades, you know, Lord knows. But um, it's always been passed down that they didn't know which of the brothers, or she didn't know which of the brothers she was married to until a year later when they saw who was holding which child when they'd all actually had a a child by then. And it was always spoken of with a degree of kind of humour or levity, this this story, but it always struck me as being quite a dark and painful kind of story as well, if not predominantly. So there there was that, there was that first kind of seed was perhaps that, that story of my, that legend of my great-grandmother. And secondly, the fact that that room still exists and it used to be called the women's room, then now it's that room on that farm, which is my family's farm in India, is now used as a grain store and it's still got bars on the window. And it just made me think about why was it called the women's room? What did they do in there? Why were they in there? And what, what did being in that room for so long actually mean and do to them so that was the second thing and then the third thing there was also some sketchy detail some very sketchy detail about a male ancestor of around that time who was involved in some sort of scandal scandalized way in the with the burgeoning indian independence movement so those three things kind of were the three posts around which i kind of webbed and created the kind of a work of a work of fiction wow so tell me about how this started so one day are you just like walking by the bars and the windows and you're like, ooh, maybe this could be a good novel. Like, when did you take the seed of it? And then how did you decide this was going to make it as a novel? Like, did you test it out? Did you know right away? Did you write any of it? Did you outline it? Like, I'm just very fascinated by the idea of 
when we get these glimmers of ideas, how do you know when it's going to be a great book and how far do you take it until you decide? Yeah, no, Zibi, I really didn't. You, you never know whether it's going to turn out to be a book, whether it's going to be an idea that's discarded. I find that's part of the writing process for me that a lot, with all my books so far, uh, you know, sometimes as much as 60,000 words, I'll get into a book and then I'll find out it's not working. I'll have to just discard it and start, a, start again. It's always frustrating to say the least but it's part of I think it's just part of how I work but with this book I started off with that's another idea of this it just felt to me that premise not knowing who your who your husband was could give rise to so much drama you know just just just, just so much kind of in there to, to and how it might play out over the generations and over the and over the years so I started writing that story and, and then my initial idea was that it would just play out over the generation and we'd see what this what kind of awful misunderstanding, how that might play out over time. And this 19, kind of the 99 strand was never in my sort of consciousness at that time, at that point. So I started writing that story in about 2017. And I wrote about maybe 15,000 words. And before the set, you know, that kind of wobble in my writing, which I've become so used to happen, and I thought this isn't working. I didn't see why I needed to write that story. I didn't see what what was the urgency behind that story. I seemed to require a real something really pulling me to the page. This story has the sense that this story has to be written for me to actually keep turning up, keep turning up at the desk. And so it wasn't. It, yeah, I, I kind of I lost. I kept some, I lost kind of faith in that story, and I kept. I remember talking about it with my friends that the story just died. It was like a bereavement that the story just died on me. I, I can't. <laughs> it's not mine to tell. So I set that. I set that aside. And actually, one of the ideas in that in that initial idea I had was this idea of a doppelganger. Of um, it was going to have a kind of a magical element to it. Idea of this, you know, the idea of the double and seeing a double. It's quite a potent image in Indian folklore as well as in other mythologies as well. And it's kind of a, a harbinger of, of of death and doom and end of times. That was that was that. So though I discard, although I set, or I thought I'd set aside that story, that image of the doppelganger really stayed with me. So I started writing what I thought were completely separate and different novels with this kind of this playful image of and this kind of fantastical image of the doppelganger. And it was set in the future, this story, this, these kinds of the other novels I started writing or started starting to write. They were set in the, the future where the kind of doppelgangers were kind of like happening. It sounds all very strange. <laughs> and where it sounds strange. But I couldn't, but slowly those doppelgangers because they, they weren't quite coming to life, so I started putting myself into those stories or versions of myself. And slowly, these, this doppelganger became a version of me until I realised that I, it was just a version of me that I was, I was transmuting and mapping onto the page. And so these doppelgangers, in time as well, whereas the story was set in the future, became closer and closer to our, to our present moment and then kind of went past the present moment into kind of like this slight historical past so I realized I was writing about a version of myself and that I was actually writing something that was perhaps quite auto-fictional and then I realized that this was this would have been in 2019 and then I realized that this character that I was with this unnamed narrator that I was writing about his kind of concerns and his difficulties and what he was searching for were also liberation freedom kind of a place to call home and then I remember thinking well that's quite similar to what this mad character that I was writing about two years previously was also kind of um, dealing with. So I took that back out of the the drawer, that, that, that 
that initial 15,000 words. And there is that these stories actually could be a whole and they could both belong side by side or they could spiral around each other. And that's how I see the stories in the book. They do spiral around each other. So that's kind of how they came to be, the novel came to be, really. I love that. That's so interesting. So it just goes to show, don't throw away those extra words that maybe you feel like the story has died and yet you can revive it. These are resurrectable, if you will, the discarded scraps. Yeah, nothing's ever lost. I do believe that. Everything will kind of find its way in there somehow. Yeah. Even when you think, even when you think, you know, there's no way it can be. Yeah. Wow. You know, in the book, it was, I was really struck by how much fear there must be. I mean, we're living in this time of like Me Too and women being able to say no and women's rights and the actions of men against women. The idea that Meha and her siblings or her sisters-in-laws, or I don't even know what you call them, that they're all there and yet they can't even see barely who it is and they don't know and all they can feel are the calluses and you know catch glimpses and try to see out from their veils the next day i mean that is it's really almost hard as a woman to even process how that would be and then to have to you know open yourself up and like have children with these men who are like essentially you know animal i mean it's crazy when you think about it anyway the way you made it was so vivid and kind of horrifying to be honest putting myself in these women's shoes so i don't know you definitely you definitely created this world where that was you know and even the way that they laughed together and they tried to find the humor in it to get through as women often do in difficult situations and try to find any sort of levity during what must have been like very disheartening time to say the least i don't know i was really struck by all that uh, thank you. I'm not sure thank you is quite the right. <laughs> I'm glad I'm glad it was it was vivid, you know. That's kind of what what you want on the page. You want the page to feel alive. You want it to actually, you know, kind of live inside the reader's head. But you're right, they have no they have no voice. They have no the women, you know, Meher and her Banson and Galeen, the two sisters in law, they have no right to feel anything, they have no right to know anything, according you know, according to um, the, the other people in the house, not least their kind of the tyrannical mother-in-law, which who's kind of watching watchful eye they they live over. And but you know, and today we would consider those behaviors in terms of you know gendered power dynamics. But of course, those kind of terms weren't available to them. But nevertheless, it's really interesting to me how those kinds of power dynamics do play out and can do corrupt kind of like these people's love for each other actually so even though on one hand the story could be read as a kind of a love story between Meher and and Suraj but also it's kind of it's a love that is corrupted by these very you know gendered um, power dynamics so how much is and this is this this is a note in the book how much is Meher's professed love for Suraj actually just her projection for her need for freedom how much does she just see him as a vehicle to get her out of the China room and to get to a place where she does have greater liberation. And likewise, how much is Suraj's professed love for Mehr actually just a projection and an illustration of his need to sort of like, as he says, destroy the world, you know, the difficulties he faces to be the youngest born son in a family where the youngest is not allowed any or permitted any sort of rights to, to land or to, you know, status. So it's interesting to me how their love how the gender power dynamics do actually play a big part in their in their feelings for each other, and also I just love the fact that Meher, it's you know she is you're right she 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 doesn't have a voice but she is courageous she is strong willed she is spirited, and part of you know the joy for me in the book is watching how she kind of takes ownership of her right to feel desire and of her right to her own personhood as as the novel goes on. Wow. 
Did you debate using any other titles or were you sure this would be it the whole time? Titles. Well, no, when I was started, it was called The Women's Room, which to me felt, just felt a little, never quite start right. It felt a little too on the nose and just slightly, slightly both too generic and also just too, too particular because it didn't really, it, it kind of pointed too much to that space without talking to the things that the space might represent a bit more widely. So when... China Room came to my head that was it felt right and usually with titles that's it they they kind of they when you you know when you, it's when you have it they feel they feel right and either they refer to something in the novel or they refer to something outside of the novel but China Room did both it both refers to the space but also refers to what that space represents it points outside of the space as well and China and I have these silly ideas that China is you know you know the idea of delicacy versus versus room which is quite a room's meant to be quite solid spaces I like that kind of opposition and also and this is a silly thing I like the fact that no letters in the word China are repeated in the word room so as if both the words are kind of like the letters all stand apart and they're kind of like they're staring at each other in quite a spare kind of like you know, gazing quite like a, a hard way and which no one else will ever notice but it's something that I think appeals to to my sense of what a good title can do and can be. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Interesting. Letter repetition. I've never even really thought about that, but there you go. Who knew? Well, I think that's definitely a good call because, yeah, I feel like the women's room could be the bathroom. I mean, that's what I would, you know. Do you have yeah, to yeah, yeah, yeah. So, anyway, you dodged a bullet there. Nice job. <laughs> Wait, so how did you become a novelist to begin with? Well, I think like most writers I was a reader first though I was a late reader I didn't start reading novels until I was in my like late teens till I was about 18 when it re- I really got the I got the bug and I realized that that through the act of reading was where I found meaning in that in that kind of conversation between reader and writer is where meaning is kind of like producing watching these characters going through their lives in this hypothetical space which we call a novel was where actually ideas of truth and dramatic truth actually really came to the fore and they really resonated really strong with me and when I first started reading novels I was just reading you know so heavily just so I was reading beautiful novels a day it was like a 
and Dan had burst in this world of storytelling that just sort of came over me like a wave. So I read heavily. And then at some point, you know, I just start, I started asking questions of the, of the writer beyond the page. Like, why did you write this book in this way? Why in this order? Why have, you know, why not like this instead? And I think once you start wondering how a book is put together and how it works, for some, it's, it's not too great a leap to, to think that you can have a go yourself. Actually, I could have, I could have a go at this. I can actually see if I can do the nuts and bolts and mechanics and put together this clockwork arrangement and try to make a novel work. So um, I started writing my first novel when I was probably, yeah, I was in my mid-20s, about 26. And that came out when I was 29. Wow. Were you working full-time also, or did you make that your job? Like, how did you fit it in? No, I was working full-time. I was working in a, for a financial services firm in, I was working for, it was an insurance firm, actually. I was in the marketing department for them. So I'd write in the evenings and at weekends and through you know holidays instead of going you know, anywhere interesting i just sit in the room in at the top of my parents house secretly scrolling away just writing i didn't tell anyone i wanted to be a writer or that i was writing it was simply felt like something i needed to keep quite secret and and to myself and i didn't start writing full time until i was about halfway through my second novel or just when it became financially viable to do so. Wow. That's amazing. Why were you afraid? Were you afraid it, they weren't, they, you wouldn't be successful? Like where, what was the, where was the, where did the fear come from? Let's dig deep here. Yeah, um, <laughs> I suppose there was just no, I had no examples of people who around me who worked in, you know, who in the arts or were a bookish. I wasn't from a particularly, I'm not from a literary kind of family or a bookish household and no one around me was bookish so it just felt quite a, a slightly bombastic thing to say to say I want to be a writer or I'm going to be a writer it's like well who are you to be a, you know what, what it felt like just what a, a strange and slightly unbelievable kind of goal to aim for so I think that's why I think just not wanting to appear because and also just not perhaps not feeling as if, as if in some rents I had a quite at that time had the right to claim that kind of thing right well see now once you are right you realize it's it's nothing at all, you know. It's it's anyone can anyone can and should can can and should do it. it. Shouldn't be something that is put on a on a different plane to any other kind of profession at all. But at that time, I did feel some something that was just something otherworldly about it. Yeah. Well, so your doppelganger could be a professional author, while the yeah. you could be squirreling away in marketing or something. <laughs> yeah, that'd work. Yeah. <laughs> Are you working on a new novel now? I am, and. I've just started. It's very early days, but the idea of the doppelganger Zivia won't go away. It's still, okay. it's still gnawing at me. So clearly, there is something in that image and in that idea which I'm going to have to just write out because I don't think it's going to go away until I do actually get it on the page. So I think, but it, the book might may well centre that kind of idea or notion. But again, knowing how I've, my creative process has worked in the last three novels. I could get 30,000 words into it and realize that's not that's not going to fly and just start again. So at the moment, it's just at a very early, delicate stage where I'm just trying to work out not even what the book is about, but like what, what, what do I want the book to be about or what, you know, but I'm, it's usually in the second draft that the book will tell me what it's really about. Interesting. And what do you what do you like to read? Do you still love to read? Do you read all the time? Oh, I don't, I don't read any as, when near as much as I used to I have three young children so it's just time just isn't there to read as much as I did though it's getting easier dad don't have time to read books perhaps (laughs) (laughs) 
yeah. But it's getting easier as, as they are slowly but surely getting older. <laughs> but I love to read, yeah, I mean, I'm reading Elena Ferrante's The Days of Abandonment at the moment, which is it's, um, somehow I didn't read it when it first came out. And I'm loving, really loving that, actually. That's really enjoyable. I love Curtsy, the South African, or I suppose now Australian novelist, Joan Didion. I really love her work. So yeah, yeah, Helen Garner. I tend to write poets. Actually, Les Murray, the late Les Murray, he's a real favourite of mine, the Australian poet. But um, I tend to respond to writing that's really spare and taut and terse, kind of like Didion, I guess. And, you know, that's that's really just feels like it's you know, just about to break that kind of like really hard lyrical edge to to a sentence. I kind of, that's kind of the writing I kind of want to get to and try to kind of write myself. There was a memoir I read a while ago that I feel like has that same sort of aesthetic or not maybe aesthetic is the wrong word, sort of literary style, if you will, but it's called Joy Enough by Sarah McCall okay. sort of, of the jo- Joan Didion. It's memoir, not poetry or anything else, but I don't know. You might like it. Not that you're looking for a book recommendation, but it's easy to read in like a day. It's very short. So, but it's about losing her mother. And I don't know, you're so good at writing female characters. So it could be research. Anyway, you might enjoy it. Joy Enough by Sarah McCall. Yeah. Anyway, I don't know why recommending books to you, but uh, how old are your kids, by the way? Oh, they're eight, six, and four. And it's girl, boy, girl. And yeah, they keep... They, you know, I, obviously they keep me more than occupied and with the summer holidays bearing down on us I'm kind of like fearful of what on earth are we going to do for seven weeks with unless you know with the restrictions as they are lots of woodland walks I imagine yeah. yes I have the same I have the same I have an eight-year-old girl and a six-year-old boy also but I also have 14-year-old twins and oh, I finally have sent them to day camp which wasn't open out here last summer and I'm like this is amazing <laughs> well, it really they really help to get those few hours of just when you can just, you know, when you, I can, you know, I can load the dishwasher, I can get something else done. Yeah. While, while that came out wrong. I mean, I missed, I actually started crying when they all left for camp yesterday. I was like burst into tears, but I mean, I don't mean that I don't love them home, but I think, you know, you know what I no, mean? Yeah, but, definitely. I absolutely do know what you mean. Yeah. But yeah, sometimes I'm just like, I don't know how I think I'm getting all this stuff done. I can't, they're like not leaving me alone, but I don't know. So thank God for these four weeks of camp so I can read like a thousand books. <laughs> anyway, yeah. awesome. Well, do you have advice to aspiring authors? What would I say to aspiring authors? I'd say, you know, it took me a long time to work out, and I still probably haven't got there, what kind of writer I am and want to be and tend to be okay with that. I spent a lot of time kind of like mimicking or emulating other writers that, you know, when I was younger that I admired and because I thought that's what writing should be. And I think the sooner you can kind of get over that, the, 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 you know, the, the better and the sooner you'll get to the kind of work that feels alive. So I, I don't know if there's any way to get to get to that point without perhaps, but I suppose just being aware of it, be aware of when you are perhaps just mimicking other writers that you love and that you justifiably love and that you just want to be, you know, want to sort of like pay your dues to and, or doff your cap to and to accept that sometimes, I suppose sometimes the writers we love are not the writers that are most useful to us and to be recognising that difference. I found that certainly. And also you don't need to, I hear a lot of people say write every day and I say you don't need to write every day, but, you know, but that isn't to say, no, don't only only write when you feel inspired, but you know, but also don't put off writing as well. If things are much easier once things are down on the page. It's it's easier. The first draft is always just yeah, difficult, whereas um, the editing process is like it's not joyous, but it's 
it's easier than the than the initial kind of like trying to lever something out of your body and get it onto the page. I don't know though. I'm working on a memoir myself and I just printed out my first draft and now I'm like, how on earth am I going to edit this? It's so big. There's so many pages. Like it's so easy for me to edit an essay, right? Because you can like see it all and move it. I'm like, how am I ever going to do this? So I don't know. Yeah, I find that I'm not that I'm, not that I'm giving advice, but I find putting it away for if I can if I can put it away for a month or so, that usually helps me in kind of like trying to just see it differently and not just come up with fresh eyes, but also other things will have happened in that meantime where I'll start thinking about it differently but you're right it's a it's a big thing it's like trying to like I know look at an an elephant through a microscope it's it's really it's not easy yeah I don't know I guess it has to be by chapter or something I don't know well anyway I have so much respect for you and your ability to do this over and over again and the worlds that you create and the style in which you write and even just how you shined a light on this group of women and you know they sort of came to life and their own experience and how that informs my own day and feeling so grateful that I don't have to be in a China room or women's room or whatever. So <laughs> anyway, well, thank you for sharing. I hope you find more time to read and write and do whatever. And, you know, there's always Roblox for the kids on iPads. If you allow that, that's my go-to strategy. Yeah. Them. No, my eldest is a fan of Roblox. So yeah, that we're definitely, we've got that one chalked up. Yeah. Okay, good. All right. <laughs> All right. Well, have a great day and thanks for coming on. Thanks, Libby. Thanks for having me. Okay. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. 